is time to put away the bias, the lies and deceit and bring forth real talk from real people about real news. Providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. Life is a series of never-ending stories. I've been an intelligence analyst for many years, and my job, as I see it, is to tell those stories in a way that will give some clarity to this complicated and perplexing world. Welcome to Viewpoint Midweek Report. I'm Alana Friedman, and over the next hour, I'll try to give you an in-depth look into some of this week's top news stories. I'll give you my take on these stories based on a combination of open source intelligence, my own research, and more than a few years of experience connecting the dots. It's not just about what's happening, but what it means in the real world that you and I live in. Sometimes it's really hard to get a handle on everything that's going on and all the opinions that follow. From the left, from the right, everyone has an opinion. So if I can bring a little more clarity to the picture, then I'll know I've done my bit. Now, if you're like me, you love America and you want to be free and safe. There are a lot of things in today's world that threaten that freedom. These are some of the stories about the issues that can make all the difference. So let's dig right in. One of the biggest and most important stories this week was the massacre at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. A man walked into the Linwood Mosque and started shooting at the worshippers. He killed seven right on the spot, and one more died later at the hospital. According to early reports, a man who was in the mosque at the time, his name was Abdul Aziz, he picked up the first thing he could find, which, as it turned out, was a credit card machine, and he ran after the shooter, shouting, Come here! Come here! He apparently scared the shooter away from the mosque, and many lives were no doubt saved. But there was more to the tragedy because the report said that the shooter had already visited another mosque, the Al-Nur Mosque, where he had killed 43 worshippers in cold blood. As could have been predicted, social media was humming within minutes. In the beginning, there were reports, then comments, then responses to the comments. Everybody who had something to say and many who really didn't have anything to say but said it anyway were on board with the news. There were accusations and there were counter-accusations, perhaps because people needed to find a reason for such a horrific attack on people praying. Some needed to find a cause, and some turned their comments into political statements. And the comments kept coming, millions of them. Some people were eager to place blame. There were many who put the blame for the massacre directly on President Trump, which is frankly absurd. Honestly, however you may feel about the president, I think blaming him for this horror halfway around the world was more like a knee-jerk reaction from dyed-in-the-wool Trump haters who are always ready to blame anything and everything on the president. When the president said he didn't see a rise in the white supremacists in the United States, Alexandria Casio-Cortez tweeted, quote, What the president is saying here, Quote, if you engage in violent acts of white supremacy, I will look the other way. Unquote. Understand that this is deliberate. This is why we can't afford to sit on the sidelines. Unquote. 
but others blamed words exactly like those as the kind of language that divides us and leads us to violence. The blame game is an easy one to play if you don't care who gets hurt. Words are cheap, but life is not. So the truth is that there is not any one person or any one thing in particular that is responsible when a radical nut job goes off the deep end and carries out an atrocity like this. Human beings are complex organisms, and the motivations for whatever we do are connected to a lifetime of experiences, education, and relationships. Sometimes there are physical and psychological reasons for such antisocial behavior. We will ultimately learn more about the man who killed 50 people in Christchurch last week and what led up to the massacre in the two mosques. But will we learn enough from it to make a difference and perhaps to keep it from happening again? Probably not. We've seen it before. We saw it in Orlando against gays. We saw it in Charlottesville against the left. We saw it in Charleston, South Carolina against blacks and in Pittsburgh against Jews who, like the Muslims in Christchurch, had come to pray. We have had time to analyze and process what happened there and time to come up with antidotes. But guess what? It keeps happening. In fact, it happened again two days later in the Dutch city of Utrecht when another man opened fire on a tram and killed three people. He injured several more. The authorities said they could not rule out terrorism as a motive. As in New Zealand, the man was caught and we will certainly learn more about his motives in due time. In my opinion, any attack like these two are terrorism, plain and simple, regardless of what drives them. They happen suddenly, they instill fear, and they target innocent people whose only crimes are being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The history of mankind is peppered with the crimes of hate, from Genghis Khan to Adolf Hitler, Hate seems to be a part of the DNA of a small but critical part of our human experience. Fighting it will continue to take courage and optimism. The courage to combat it and the optimism to believe that it can be overcome. In any case, it will take people of goodwill to rise to the challenge and to provide the strength and comfort to those who will inevitably be victimized by it when it happens again. In the meantime, we pray for the people who died in the Christchurch massacre and for the families they left behind and for the future of the human race that is capable of such murderous hate and for the acts of love that provide a balance within the context of our daily lives. Okay, let's change the pace a little bit. Let's consider a different story. It's not a news story, but it definitely comes from the nutty news department. The 2020 presidential elections are still almost two years away, and the Iowa caucus, which provides the first opportunity for voters to have their say about the candidates, that's almost a year away. Yet, incredibly, Democrats have already jumped on the bandwagon in record numbers and declared their determination to run in 2020. Several have already made it to Iowa to test the waters, and they are jockeying for position in an overly crowded field. Their campaigns have begun in earnest. In my view, this overly subscribed race for the White House is largely because the left never accepted the fact that Donald Trump actually won the election in 2016. And they're angry because every Democrat politician is absolutely sure 
that the Democrats could do a much better job than Donald Trump. They have been working furiously ever since January 2017 to bring this president down, no matter what the consequences. This early start to the campaigns shows how desperate they really are. In 2016, the Republicans fielded a record-breaking 17 candidates and came under a hail of ridicule for having so many people in the running. Ironically, this year, the Republicans have only one candidate in the race, while the Democrats already have at least 14, and more people are expected to jump in before this is over. Before the last round of presidential primaries, a liberal friend of mine asked me, rather rudely, I thought, which of those clowns are you going to vote for? At the time, I ignored the question. But today, I might ask him the very same question. Which of these clowns are you going to vote for? In any case, wouldn't it be wonderful and wouldn't America's voters be well served if this large field of candidates would educate voters on the issues they care about and explain how their positions differ from each other? If they would do that, then informed voters would be able to make intelligent choices when they go to the polls for the primaries. But I somehow doubt that reason will overcome the thrill of the contest and the quest for power as the campaigns heat up. It will be very interesting to see how these candidates who were so quick to criticize the field of Republicans only three years ago will handle the contest against each other over the next year and a half and how many will be left standing by the time we get to the debates. Now here's a story you might have missed. The Southern Poverty Law Center, also known as the SPLC, just announced that they have fired one of their founders, Morris Deese. Have you heard of the SPLC? It's one of the most insidious and downright evil not-for-profit organizations in America. It specializes in branding conservative individuals and organizations, evangelical groups, and anti-terrorism professionals as hate mongers. The SBLC was originally founded in 1971. It was a small civil rights law firm, and its mission was to provide legal support for poor blacks who were being victimized by the organized anti-black sentiment that was still rampant in the American South. Then, in 1979, it expanded its activities and began to sue white supremacist groups like the Ku Klux Klan for hate crimes. The firm won large settlements that bankrupted some of these groups and scared off others. Perhaps the founders really did have good intentions when they began the firm, but oh, have the mighty fallen. After he announced the firing of Morris Deese, the organization's president, Richard Cohen, turned on his 82-year-old former colleague and made a self-righteous and self-serving public statement. Let me read his statement to you, and I quote, As a civil rights organization, the SPLC is committed to ensuring that the conduct of our staff reflects the mission of the organization and the values we hope to instill in the world. When one of our own fails to meet those standards, no matter his or her role in the organization, we take it seriously and must take appropriate action. Unquote. 
As Cohen pushed the elderly Deese overboard, his prepared statement suggested that the founder's employment was terminated over what he called a, quote, matter of conduct, unquote. Deese was far more civil, and he told a local newspaper that he had no idea why he was let go, but he wished the organization the absolute best. It's not clear what that awful conduct might have been, but it can't possibly come close to the awful conduct that his organization carries out every day as it tries to destroy the lives of the people it deems hateful. Let's take a quick look at the sanctimonious SPLC. It still calls itself a civil rights organization, but in reality, it has become an organized hate group, one that practices projection, meaning that it accuses others of the very sins it commits itself. Its core business is branding the groups and individuals it doesn't like as hate groups, racists, and radicals. It publishes their names, addresses, and details on a list of hate organizations that appears on its website. Because of its backing by people like George Soros and companies like Amazon, Google, Apple, and J.P. Morgan Chase, the SPLC has become one of the most respected and wealthiest not-for-profits in the country. According to its last annual report, it's got a bank account in the Cayman Islands with over $300 million. The SPLC makes no secret of its agenda. Its website states clearly, quote, Hate Watch monitors and exposes the activities of the American radical right, unquote. Only the groups and individuals it targets are not all hate groups. They are frequently American patriots who support strong borders and responsible immigration policy, the religious right, who hold conservative views on issues like abortion and marriage, and homeland security experts who are concerned about the Islamist terrorist threat from groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, and Hezbollah. But because they follow a conservative ideology, they are targeted for destruction by the SPLC, which has developed its mission into an art form. It deploys the politically motivated use of the term hate group to recklessly attack and sometimes destroy those it decides are its targets. And it packages them all together with such hateful organizations as the Ku Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, and white supremacists, and calls them all hate groups. So getting back to the firing of Morris Deese, which is where we began this segment, it was done in the most callous and unkind way but it seems absolutely consistent with the policy they pursue when they decide to destroy someone, as they do in their war against Christians and conservatives. And in case there is any doubt, its intent is very clear. The damage that it does when it targets an individual or organization is not accidental. The intent of the SPLC was made crystal clear by its editor-in-chief when he made the following statement. Now, he probably should have spoken to his lawyer first, but I guess there is no accounting for either hubris or stupidity. He said, and I quote, We see this political struggle, right? I mean, we're not trying to change anybody's mind. We're trying to wreck the groups, and we are very clear in our head. We are trying to destroy them, unquote. 
The danger of the SPLC is not only that it has the power to cause severe damage to those it chooses to destroy, but that it has gained credibility because of its endorsement by people like George Soros and companies like Amazon, Apple, and Google, who depend on SPLC to guide them in the world of endowments and foundation grants. By relying on SPLC's opinion of who is good and who is bad, the doors of nonprofit giving are closed to those the SPLC deems a hate group. Many good and worthy people are left off the recipients list of these so-called charitable foundations. The good news is that some of the people it has targeted are no longer willing to lie down and take it. By last June, some 60 individuals and groups were considering suing the SPLC for defamation. Several have already filed suit, and one suit was resolved last year with a multi-million dollar judgment against the SPLC. It is very possible that, at long last, the SPLC is beginning to lose its credibility, and that will be very welcomed by all those whom it has injured over the last several decades. This is long overdue. So now we're going to take a short break to hear from the wonderful people at America Out Loud. But I'll be back after the break, so stay right where you are, and I'll bring you up to date on a very dangerous situation in the Middle East that may bring Israel to the brink of a new war. The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Blitz your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Viewpoint Midweek Report. I'm Alana Friedman, and I've got another story to tell you. This is one that hit the news a few days ago. Now, if you follow things in the Middle East, you will know that this story is not to be taken lightly because the fallout could be very serious, and it may lead to a bigger story over the next few weeks. So I'm going to drill down a bit and give you not just the story itself, but the background that explains how this very dangerous situation got this way. Here it is. Last Thursday, the air raid sirens went off in Israel again. Israelis, mostly in the south near Gaza, hear these sirens every time Hamas fires off rockets that are aimed at Israeli towns and cities near the Gaza Strip. But this time, the warning wasn't for the south. It was for the city of Tel Aviv, located 50 miles north on the Mediterranean coast. It's the most heavily populated city in Israel. Now Israel has a defense system called Iron Dome. You may have heard of it. It shoots missiles out of the sky and last week was no exception. One of the two Fajr missiles that was fired from Gaza was destroyed in the air and the debris fell into a field north of Tel Aviv. The other just landed in an open area and did little damage. No one was hurt. But the deployment of these missiles is significant because, first, Hamas is a terrorist organization that rules Gaza, and it has been attacking Israel for many years. But I think Hamas is desperate not to start a war before the upcoming Israeli elections. 
They want to see Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, defeated roundly, and a more left-wing government take charge in Israel. Netanyahu is far too hawkish for Hamas, and they are looking for a leader who is less likely to look for a military confrontation. That will give Hamas a chance to build up its forces. But if a war were to begin before the elections, Netanyahu and his party would most certainly win. Now here's the strange thing. In its desperate attempt not to start a conflict right now, Hamas immediately jumped into the news saying that the firing of the two missiles was a, quote, mistake, unquote. According to Hamas's explanation, there were two low-level Hamas soldiers horsing around the missiles, which were on their launchers and aimed for Tel Aviv. And as they brushed against them, the rockets went off. Really? That's a lot to swallow, but okay, let's say that's what actually happened. Immediately after the rockets were deployed, Hamas rushed in to declare a ceasefire. Israel did not immediately confirm or accept the ceasefire. Instead, it deployed more Iron Dome missile defense batteries around the country and struck more than 100 Hamas targets in Gaza. Hamas then launched nine more rockets from Gaza, Six of them were intercepted, and the other three fell harmlessly into open areas. Were these rockets a mistake, too? It's hard to say. This is the Middle East. Anything can happen there, and it doesn't need to make sense. To understand the situation, a little background is in order. Hamas has never claimed to seek peace with Israel. Quite the opposite. Although the West has done its best to impose peace upon the region, Hamas has never been a willing partner. As I said before, Hamas is a terrorist organization. Its original charter is very explicit. It says Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it has obliterated others before it. That's pretty clear. So what about all the efforts to create a Middle East peace between Israel and the Palestinians? Hamas addresses that too. Its charter says, quote, now and then, the call goes out for the convening of an international conference to look for ways to solve the Palestinian question. There is no solution for the Palestinian question except through jihad. Initiatives, proposals, and international conferences are all a waste of time. Unquote. In other words, peace between Israel and Hamas is not possible if Hamas has anything to say about it. Peace has never been a consideration, not for Hamas. But the sleight of hand that Hamas uses as it pretends to participate, that is Hamas's stock and trade. As part of its trickery in 2017, its leaders crafted a new charter that posed as a softer, kinder document compared to the first. I guess they thought it would hopefully fool their adversaries into thinking they had changed their mission. But the very first item in the new charter gave them away and showed how little had actually changed. They didn't do a very good job of hiding it because although they altered some of the words that had offended the West and differentiated between Jews and Zionists, they did not change their mission. The new charter says, in slightly less combative words, quote, the Islamic resistance movement Hamas is a liberation Islamic and Palestinian national resistance movement. It aims to liberate Palestine and to fight against the Zionist project, unquote. By liberating Palestine, they mean destroying Israel. Later on, the new charter says, quote, we do not recognize the Zionist state. 
all shapes of occupation, settlements, Judaization, and the forgery of truth are illegal. These rights do not dissolve with time. Hamas refuses any alternative, which is not the whole liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. Unquote. Now, of course, they mean the river, which is the Jordan River, to the sea, which is the Mediterranean. And that is all of Israel uh, as it exists today. And that brings us to a very important point. Both Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank completely deny the Jewish historical connection to Israel and to Jerusalem. They consider the Jewish claim to the land of Israel a forgery of truth, as they say, and therefore claim the land as their own based on a reconstructed history. They claim that the Jewish people never lived in the land before the 20th century, that they came from Europe, but that the Palestinians have been living there for thousands of years. In fact, they have stolen Jewish history, which goes back at least 4,000 years, and that leads to something else interesting. There's a great deal of construction going on today under the Temple Mount, what Muslims call Haram al-Sharif. The Israelis have strong indications that many artifacts from the first and second temple periods are now being destroyed in order to support the theory that the Jews were never here before. As the story of the Middle East continues to play out, important relics of history are disappearing forever. So how does Hamas rewrite history? The new charter also makes this clear. It says, quote, Hamas sees the Jewish problem and the anti-Semitism and the injustice against the Jewish people is a phenomenon related to European history, not to the history of Arabs or Muslims and their heritage, unquote. Hitler called his program of mass murder all about the Jewish problem. I doubt that the reference by Hamas was accidental. Hamas has reconstructed, in fact, totally made up its own history. One only has to read the Bible, and particularly any part of the Old Testament, to understand that the Jewish connection to Israel is thousands of years old. It goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who lived and traveled throughout all of what is now Israel. Those three patriarchs were the founders of Judaism and the forefathers of Christianity and, yes, Islam. There were no Palestinians in the Bible, or for hundreds of years after the New Testament was completed. No Palestinian Arab people existed in the start of 1920, when the British came to the region. In fact, the term Palestinian was coined by the British when they created the British Mandate of Palestine in 1923. That lasted until the creation of Israel in 1948. Now, during the British Mandate, every citizen was a Palestinian. It didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Christian or a Muslim. Your identity papers and your passport said you were a Palestinian, period. It was Yasser Arafat who claimed the name Palestinian in 1954 for all the Arabs who lived in Israel, for their ancestors, and for their offspring. So what is Hamas's intent? Why would they want to rewrite their own history and delete Jewish history? Let's look at a slice of recent events. Last year on May 14th, Hamas began what they called the Great March of Return. They promised that a million Gazans would come to the border between Gaza and Israel in what they told the world would be a peaceful demonstration. 
but the instructions which they gave to the Gazans through Hamas's Arabic Facebook page told a very different story. The Facebook posting said, and I quote, and this is a translation, the protesters are asked to please act in accordance with the demand to bring a knife or a gun and to hide it under their clothes and not use it except where there is need to capture soldiers or residents of Israel. It is requested not to kill them, but to hand them over to the Hamas forces, as this is an important bargaining chip which Israel is afraid of. Unquote. Hamas gave additional instructions to its fighters. It told them, quote, There is a prohibition for Hamas operatives to approach the border from a fear that they will be killed or captured by Israeli troops, unless the security fence falls, and then they must enter armed into Israel under the cover of the masses and carry out terror attacks, unquote. The fighters were cynically encouraged to push women and children up against the border because, quote, the Israelis won't kill women and kids, unquote. Hamas promoted this march to the world as a peaceful demonstration. But instead, Hamas fighters tried to breach the fence. They threw pipe bombs and grenades at the troops and tried to get through the fence with wire cutters and other devices, but were driven back by Israeli soldiers using anti-riot methods. Hamas had promised that bulldozers would be there to break down the fences, but they never showed up. One group of eight Hamas terrorists tried to break through the fence, but were shot and killed. They were later found to have been carrying hand grenades, a handgun, wire cutters, and crowbars. By the end of that day, 62 Gazans were dead and more than 1,200 were injured. Of the dead, at least 50 were Hamas fighters, and that's according to Hamas's own count. The ultimate purpose of the march was to break through the border fence and march together all the way to Jerusalem while they destroyed the Israeli towns and cities on the way and captured and killed as many Israelis as possible. Once they reached Jerusalem, they planned to stake their claim to the city, declare a Palestinian state, and, quote, drive the Jews into the sea, unquote. The night before the scheduled march, Israel dropped thousands of flyers across Gaza, warning the residents not to join the march and not to be Hamas puppets. In the end, for whatever reason, fewer than 50,000 people actually showed up. That great march of return that was to have brought a million Palestinians from Gaza to Jerusalem fizzled and failed. Israel is a vibrant country and one of the world's most prolific developers of groundbreaking technology in medicine, communications, defense, and much more. And it is home to 8.5 million Israelis, including more than 6.5 million Jews and nearly 2 million Arabs. Yet Israel is tiny by world standards. It is roughly the size of New Jersey and would fit easily within the shores of Lake Michigan. In a map of the United States, Israel would be totally lost. So when Hamas attacks Israel with rockets and missiles that threaten the lives of Israeli citizens and the sovereign territory of the nation, Israel must determine what is proportional. If Hamas fired two missiles and Israel responded with a hundred attacks, how can that be reasonable? And maybe the best and most appropriate response is, proportional is whatever it takes to make the rockets and missiles stop. If the question of intent were a real issue, it would have been decided a long time ago. Hamas has made no secret of its intent to destroy Israel and claim the land for Palestine. 
Israel's only mission when it comes to Hamas and the people of Gaza is to make sure that Hamas's evil intentions are always defeated. Hamas is biding its time, holding on to a fragile ceasefire. For many years, its priorities have been military against Israel. It has neglected its own people, stolen their food, their water, their medicines, and other vital supplies from them. It has diverted billions of dollars of international humanitarian aid to support its war effort against Israel. It has allowed Gaza's infrastructure to deteriorate, and Gazans have no clean water to drink, cook, or bathe. They also have only a few hours of electricity every day, even in midsummer when the temperatures are sizzling hot and the only relief is the Mediterranean Sea. But Hamas has let all five waste treatment plants in Gaza deteriorate to the point of failure. So now Gaza pumps 20 million gallons of raw sewage into the Mediterranean every day, where the people of Gaza swim. The story of Hamas's 13-year rule in Gaza has become a tragedy of enormous proportions. Six months ago, I predicted that it was only a matter of time before the people of Gaza begin to rebel. And it's happening now. Over the last weekend, demonstrations erupted in several cities in Gaza. Journalists are among the people who have been arrested, but at least one video has emerged that shows Hamas forces using extreme brutality to put down the demonstrations. The Palestinian Authority in the West Bank has appealed to Egypt and Qatar to intervene. But at least for the time being, the demonstrations continue. The people say it's all about improving the quality of their lives in the Gaza Strip. I can certainly understand that. And the arrests continue, particularly targeting people affiliated with Fatah. And it has been reported that Hamas soldiers were using live fire against the demonstrators. A member of the Fatah Central Committee said it wasn't the Israelis but the Hamas gangs who are now terrorizing and suppressing the hungry in the Gaza Strip. Even the weekly riots along the Gaza-Israel border were called off this week, although Hamas was back on the border by Tuesday, sending fire balloons into Israel and trying to ignite Israeli fields and forests. Israeli planes shot at two separate groups launching these dangerous balloons from Gaza, but there were no reports of casualties. It is interesting that even with the unrest on the home front, Hamas still recognizes its first priority. It's not the people of Gaza, that's for sure. No, it's the war against Israel and the burning need to destroy the Jewish state in any way it can. And despite Hamas's vigorous crackdown and brutal treatment of the demonstrators, the unrest is growing. Gaza is a spark in search of a gas leak. Israel's job is to make certain that the eventual explosion, if it occurs, can be contained and not spread into another war with a terrorist organization. We'll be talking about this more as time goes on. It's one of those stories that just doesn't seem to have an end. At least not yet. In the next segment, I'm going to shift gears dramatically and tell you about a woman who captures the headlines almost every day and simply doesn't know when to stop talking. But before I do that, I need to take another hard break, and then when I come back, I'll tell you the story of one of the most dangerous people in Congress today and the threat she poses to America. So don't go away. Stay right where you are, and you'll hear another very interesting story. We are the vision of the voices. You can email us at talkatamericaoutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. 
we know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Viewpoint Midweek Report. I'm Alana Friedman, and I want to talk to you about a revolution that is going on in Washington right now. If this revolution is successful, it has the ability to totally destroy our country. And it is all wrapped up around the story of a young congresswoman who just doesn't know when to stop talking. But first, before I get into that, there's an old story I want to tell you about a young woman who went away to college and, and who, at the end of her first year, returned home. She was so eager to show off how much she learned. She knew so much now about so many things that she immediately began to show her disdain for the ignorance of her parents. She was insufferably arrogant because she knew everything and her parents knew so little. Amazingly, four years later, after finishing college and having acquired a bit more knowledge and understanding about the world, she returned home to find, to her amazement, how much her parents had learned while she was away. Hmm. The first part of this story about the returning student who knew everything perfectly describes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez the 29-year-old former bartender who is now a freshman congresswoman from the 14th District in the Bronx. With barely two months' experience in Washington under her belt, she already knew everything and she was determined to tell us all just how right she was and how wrong we were. In fact, she made it abundantly clear to anyone who had not offered up a solution to the environmental problems that she claims to have addressed. She said, I'm like, you try. Until you do it, I'm the boss. How about that? The arrogance that defines her also underscores the total absurdity of her persona. Ocasio-Cortez is both brash and stupid, which is a very poor combination. She took Washington by storm from the very first day she arrived, making new headlines every day with her unique combination of brashness, unbridled hubris, uncompromising ignorance, and ongoing street theater of the absurd. She began by complaining about how she could not afford to live in Washington. And what was she to do, poor thing? She failed to mention that her salary as a congresswoman would be $174,000 a year plus perks. A short-term loan would have been a no-brainer for anyone else, but it was far better theater to complain to the press. Then she showed off her ignorance of the government she had just joined when she spoke about the three chambers of government, the President, the Senate, and the House. If they still taught civics in public school, every kid in America would know that the three branches of government are the executive, which is the president, the legislative, which is both houses of Congress, and the judicial, which is the Supreme Court. 
but instead of accepting the inevitable criticism over her stunning lack of knowledge, she slammed the Republicans for, quote, drooling over her mistakes. Taking criticism, constructive or otherwise, does not seem to be one of her strong points. Her initial efforts in Washington were largely concentrated on promoting herself and her own nutty brand of socialism nonstop and with a great deal of noise. On February 14th, she announced her Green New Deal in a widely publicized press conference. It was shocking in its total embrace of the controversial Green Doctrine, the climate change agenda, and socialism. Her plan was fanciful, utopian, horribly expensive, and totally unrealistic. Now the good news about the Green New Deal is that Ocasio-Cortez's proposal is a non-binding resolution and cannot be enacted into law. But the bad news is this, because it has been presented as a template for a future bill, it still poses a threat to America as we know it because it calls for a complete overhaul of our democratic way of life and a shifting from a democracy to socialism. It champions a program that Barack Obama promised to carry out to fundamentally change America. It calls for a shockingly irresponsible set of programs that would take away a host of freedoms that define life in America. It would also bankrupt the country long before we have ever reached the end of the 10-year timeline. Among her most unrealistic goals are, quote, meeting 100% of the power demand in the United States through clean, renewable, and zero-emission energy sources. This would mean shutting down all the coal, oil, gas, and nuclear plants throughout the country. Because America now consumes less energy than it produces, America has become a major exporter of energy. In other words, we can now generate new revenues from the sale of energy abroad, revenues that support a host of industries, including energy, throughout the American economy. This is one of the things that the Green New Deal intends to kill. Ocasio-Cortez's resolution also seeks to overhaul America's transportation system in order to eliminate the nasty pollution and greenhouse gas emissions from cars, trucks, and airplanes. This part of the plan includes the build-out of a high-speed rail network that would provide clean, affordable, and accessible public transportation, according to Ocasio-Cortez. In fact, California has already tried to build such a system. It was a disaster. Their high-speed train was supposed to run from Los Angeles to San Francisco, but the project ran out of steam long before it was finished and after only a small section was built. It still cost Americans $10.6 billion before the state ran out of money, which brought the project to a screeching halt. According to Ocasio-Cortez's whacked-out thinking, such a program would not only succeed, it would limit greenhouse gases and eliminate the need for airplanes. Is she kidding? How does she propose to get to the 49th state, Alaska, by dog sled? or the 50th state, Hawaii, water skis, and there will be no travel to Europe or Asia or anywhere else. It's absurd. The fact that the end of air travel in America would also shut down most other major sectors of the economy and no one would be able to go anywhere seems not to have occurred to her, or maybe she just doesn't care. But if she's giving a speech in a neighborhood near you, you might want to ask her how she got there. No airplanes? Good thinking, Congresswoman. Here are some other crazy things the Green New Deal calls for. 
Ocasio-Cortez wants the government to pay for guaranteeing a job with a family-sustaining wage given to every American, even if he or she doesn't want to work. In addition to a free lunch pail, she also wants adequate family and medical leave, paid vacations, retirement security, and a high-quality health care for all Americans, as well as federal government investments in the country's education, infrastructure, and a redesign of the entire U.S. economy. Wow! And she's not finished. Her plan also calls for the rehab of every single building in the United States to meet with compliance standards required by green policy, all in 10 years. And she calls for ending our dependence on what she refers to as factory farming, with a particular reference to farting cattle, because their flatulence puts methane into the atmosphere. She answered questions about this by saying, And so... It's not to say you get rid of agriculture. It's not to say we're going to have to force everyone to go vegan or anything crazy like that. But it's to say, listen, we've got to address factory farming. Maybe we shouldn't be eating a hamburger for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, let's keep it real. But how do you feed more than 300 million people without what she calls factory farming? Okay, never mind. So let's just do away with cows. No more milk for baby. And by the way, just for the record, EPA reports that the American agricultural industry only accounts for 9% of the greenhouse gases produced in the U.S. Finally, in a public display of her nuttiness, she wondered out loud whether climate change was reason enough not to have children. I think young people have a legitimate question. You know, should, is it okay to still have children? To give her credit, Ocasio-Cortez recognizes that her plan does not provide all the final answers, but she calls it a first step in defining the problems. I call it ridiculous and patently absurd. So what is at the bottom of this gargantuan project, even if it were feasible, which it clearly isn't, would cost the nation somewhere between 70 and 100 trillion dollars. That's more than three to five times the national debt. And how does she expect to pay for it? With more taxes, of course. This is socialism. And then there's the story of Alexandria and Goliath. As if the Green New Deal in itself weren't enough, Ocasio-Cortez grabbed her slingshot, and this little David took on another Goliath. This is the story about how this wet-behind-the-ears freshman took on the giant Amazon and brought down a $40 billion project in barely two months with her verbal slingshot. This is not only a big story, it's a real-life example of how socialism really works and what it does to a thriving economy and the people it impacts. When Amazon announced that it would build a new headquarters in Long Island City, just across the East River from Manhattan, and next door to Ocasio-Cortez's own district, Governor Andrew Cuomo called this deal the largest economic development initiative that has ever been done by the city or the state together. But Ocasio-Cortez didn't like it. She didn't like the $3 billion tax break that Amazon would have gotten or the 25,000 jobs that she said were scraps. She was so eager to damn the deal that she, as usual, did not do her homework and failed to grasp that a tax credit isn't money in hand, but rather money that would not be collected in the future. She even suggested that this $3 billion could be better spent on infrastructure renewal projects instead. 
She failed to see that the $3 billion tax break would generate $50 billion in new economic activity, tax revenues, and salaries created by the new Amazon headquarters. A team of Amazon executives flew to New York and decided it just wasn't worth it. They pulled the deal. I wonder how many people in her own district, which is right next door to where Amazon was about to build, how many of them would do anything to have a job at Amazon? After the Amazon project fell through, she posted a message to all of her fans. She said, Today was the day a group of dedicated, everyday New Yorkers and their neighbors defeated Amazon's corporate greed, its worker exploitation, and the power of the richest man in the world. You know, you have to wonder, does Ocasio-Cortez really believe the crazy things she says? Just let's take a look at how she lives and how she runs her office. Let's take her office first. She made big headlines when she announced that her staff members will have starting salaries of some $50,000 with a cap at 80000 Well, all right, so she's elevated the salaries of low-level staff members to a minimum wage of $15, which is marginally livable in D.C., I guess. Okay, I got that. But she has also significantly lowered the salaries of her higher-level staff members. If they were working for other congressmen, they could be earning as much as 150000 a year. So in her weird interpretation of socialism, she is not only undercutting and underpaying the senior people on her staff, she is also encouraging her best people to leave her and get better paying jobs elsewhere. Now what's the sense in that? She, of course, is exempt from this frugality. Her own salary continues to be $174,000 a year. And, uh, oh yes, she has managed to put her boyfriend on the payroll as well and may have laundered campaign money in order to do it. But that's a story for another day. Ocasio-Cortez is not only a one-woman variety show, she's also a colossal hypocrite. Once she got over the sticker shock of life in Washington, Ocasio-Cortez took residence in a newly built luxury high-rise in the exclusive Navy Yard District where a studio apartment starts at $1,840 a month. In her new dig, she has access to amenities like a rooftop infinity pool, a cycling studio, men's and women's saunas. Sounds wonderful. What the building doesn't have are affordable units for low-income residents, which is, by the way, required under Washington, D.C.'s Affordable Dwelling Units program. And that's funny because during her campaign, she repeatedly targeted luxury real estate developers, accusing them of raising their rental prices and pushing low-income residents from their neighborhoods. Now she lives in one of those buildings. Honestly, to say she is a hypocrite would give hypocrites a bad name. Ocasio-Cortez is that college student just back from her first year away from home. She knows more than any of us, and the rest of us need to learn from her. She is naive and full of herself, and foolish in the extreme. She doesn't understand economics, so she doesn't understand why her proposal won't work. She never learned history, so she's unable to learn from history. She hasn't learned that socialism, wherever it was tried, has never worked, which is why she's okay promoting her version of socialism within the framework that depends on more government control of everything and has little connection to reality. Her plan is flawed from the beginning. The concern, and it is a big one, is that as long as the leadership of her party continue to humor her, or worse, accept her leadership, however bogus, the
the greater the possibility that what now poses as comic relief and a nagging annoyance will become a real threat to democracy as she is allowed to grab more and more power. What does Ocasio-Cortez tell us about the future of our country? Unfortunately, no one in the leadership of the Congress, the only people that she has to listen to, has told her to sit down and shut up. Ocasio-Cortez would do well to talk less, read a lot, and listen to people who may know a thing or two more than she does. Some have said that Ocasio-Cortez is the greatest gift that the Democrat Party could have given to Donald Trump as he prepares for the 2020 campaign. They may be right. If she continues to be the brash loudmouth who knows everything and wants to be the boss, the Democrats will have a difficult time overcoming that. Still, with a field of 14 candidates and more to come, anything is possible. What is clear is that, for whatever reason, Nancy Pelosi seems to be having a hard time controlling her and may be losing her grip on the party as well. It is still too soon to tell if the current flurry over Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her drive for socialist utopia is a brief five minutes of fame, like a meteor that bursts with light and then burns up and falls into oblivion, or if she will continue to gain favor with an increasingly weak Democrat party, one that will follow her lead in order not to fail completely. What is disturbing, though, in addition to her radical socialist agenda, is the fact that she has teamed up with two other freshman women, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and that does not bode well for the rest of us. These two women are not socialists, as far as I can tell, but they are Muslims who are associated with and supported by CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, a product of the Muslim Brotherhood and Hamas. The open anti-Semitism of Omar and the outspoken vulgarity and pro-Palestinian bias of Tlaib are warning signs. They seem determined to defy the norms of civil behavior and congressional tradition and ruffle as many feathers as possible. Whatever happens to Ocasio-Cortez's overhyped Green New Deal will help to determine what kind of a country we're going to have. Will it be a fully functioning democratic republic with all the freedoms that our constitution guarantees? Or will we tumble down the slippery slope towards socialism and chase a future like Venezuela, our neighbor to the south? The prescription that Ocasio-Cortez offers will destroy us long before it begins to solve any problems caused by greenhouse emissions. The Democrats are due for a stormy sea of class warfare, socialism against democracy, in an increasingly dangerous confrontation with the rest of America. Well, that's it for today. It's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for stopping by and spending time with me. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been Viewpoint Midweek Report.